This is Gulf Coast Live Arts Edition from WGCU. I'm John Davis. Thanks for joining us. This evening marks the opening reception of a new exhibition at the Wasmer Art Gallery at Florida Gulf Coast University titled A Tenuous Framework. The exhibition comes from the Milwaukee, Wisconsin-based artist team of Shana McCaw and Brent Budsberg. For more than 20 years, this married couple has worked together on artistic collaborations, exploring perceptions of history, ancestral memory, and psychological displacement. Budsberg is an artist, exhibition designer, educator, and woodworker. He's part owner of the company Current Projects, which offers custom design and fabrication services for artists, filmmakers, and other arts-related institutions. Shana McCaw is also an artist, educator, and curator with more than two decades of experience researching, teaching, and working in the Milwaukee area. She previously served as senior curator at the Charles Alice and Villa Terrace Art Museums. Those remarkable homes hold their own impressive historic collections, but the spaces are also used to showcase contemporary works. Together, Brent and Shana have exhibited nationally and internationally, and they've participated in numerous artist residencies. Their multidisciplinary practice uses sculpture, performance, photography, and installation, all of which are on full display through this exhibition. Another prominent component of this installation is the film The Inhabitants, which Brent and Shana created in collaboration with Milwaukee-based but Florida-native filmmaker Tate Bunker. In The Inhabitants, Budsberg and McCaw explore concepts of manifest destiny and the westward expansion as they take on the identities of pioneering settlers from their own immigrant ancestors in the 1800s. There's ambient sound, but it's largely a silent film. There's no dialogue, and the film abandons the traditional linear format and instead takes place in three distinct scenes, aspects of which and artifacts from are included in the exhibition space. The exhibit runs through February 29th at the Wasmer Art Gallery. Ahead of tonight's artist talk and opening reception, we're joined in studio by the artists themselves, Brent Butzberg and Shana McCall. Welcome to Gulf Coast Life Arts Edition. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, great to be here. And we're also joined by FGCU Art Gallery Director and Professor John Lasciuto, who oversees both the main gallery and the arts complex and the library art lab. He teaches professional practices to prepare students for careers after graduation. And John's own professional arts and arts education experiences have been heavily rooted in the Milwaukee region. Welcome back to the show, John. Thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Nice being here. And to engage with us and your fellow listeners about this conversation or any of our shows, find us on Facebook. We're at WGCU Public Media. On X, formerly known as Twitter, we're at WGCU. Use the hashtag GCL. And just before we get started, in the interest of full disclosure, let me just acknowledge that WGCU Public Media is among the sponsors of this exhibition. So before we delve into the installation itself, Brent and Shana, I thought it might lend some clarity if we first explored this concept that's somewhat central to your work concerning a romanticized treatment of historical narratives, you know, often in literature and films, even in our history books, and sort of this idea you're looking to get across that perhaps philosophically, no absolute truth exists when it comes to history. Yeah. Right. <laughs> In our work, we're very interested in perceptions of history, much more than we are trying to, you know, create some sort of um, accurate representation of history. And part of that is an acknowledgement that that's not really possible because we are left with sort of scattered bits of evidence that we're trying to piece back together to sort of form a picture of our past. 
And I think that that picture is constantly being altered by the storyteller and the storyteller may have a particular agenda or a particular bias and, and sort of view history in a certain way that may support their own needs or their own narratives. And so our work really kind of delves into that and, and sort of acknowledges those inaccuracies and the different sort of perceptions of history, which may or may not be truthful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think romanticism does show up in our work. In fact, there's one photograph just to the left of the entrance of the gallery that we put in the show specifically because it kind of does that to us high degree. And it was almost sort of surprising to us when that happened, because all we were trying to do was document a set piece for the film, um, which was a room that was created for my character. And all of a sudden, this one photograph just seemed like a Vermeer painting or something. Mm. It's a photograph, but it has the right light quality. And there's sort of this like painterly brushstroke background. And there's something that just lends to this feeling of kind of a like a hyper- yeah, hyper-romanticized, sort of perfected, beautiful moment, you know. But I think we found that really interesting, and we sort of started to work with that as subject matter in our work, not really saying, because actually after that photograph happened, we we thought, oh, you know, maybe maybe more photographs could come out like this. And we started photographing around the room, and none of the rest really had that same quality. So there was something that just happened with that one photograph, but it definitely made us think about how could we address romanticism in our work, not necessarily try to do that and, you know, for its own sake, but actually use that as subject matter. Yeah. And I think this comes out in some of the photos we've taken out West too, you know, because a lot of those ended up having a real sort of cinematic quality to them. uh, A lot of them almost read as like movie posters in a way. And so we're sort of like playing these two kind of pioneer or settler characters, Mm -hmm. but we're often found in these really sort of dramatic landscapes, sort of epic landscapes, but often doing mundane things. (laughs) So they they really have this sort of uh, romantic quality to them, but it's it's sort of a reference to, um, you know, even how Hollywood treats uh, the past and how it dramatizes it and and romanticizes it. Yeah, it's just, Mm -hmm. it's a really interesting concept, you know, this idea of, you know, history being at best a guess. But it's accessible. It's an easily understandable <laughs> yeah. concept. But I'm thinking so many of us like grew up in schools where you took a history class and you learned dates and you learned events and these are facts and this is what happened. And so it, it might take people a little while to to sometimes come on board. Is that something you've experienced? Yeah. I mean, I actually think, you know, and we've talked to a few people over the years with this body of work, but even in the gallery, it's like you know, you're sort of taught that, you know, here's a book, all the history is written down, here's the dates, here's exactly how it happened, here's photographs to, like, prove it. And then um, as soon as you do some of your own historical research, say even genealogical research into your background, you're sort of like, wait a minute, what I thought is not true. Or or this picture that I thought was showing these people I'm related to, all of a sudden there's people that you don't know. I mean, it could go in a number of directions, but I think it's a familiar feeling that you encounter that history isn't exactly always. Yeah, well, there's just so much missing, you know. And and I think when you think about like a historic event that we read about in the history books, there's a sort of like accepted narrative that's been built up around that. And there's been all sorts of research and stuff. And we've sort of put together a, a, a story that we think is pretty accurate. And it may be or it may not be. But when you start looking at something like family history and you, you, you know, you're driving through the countryside and your father points out the house where – you know, your grandfather grew up 
And and it's you know it's you, you see this sort of remnant of the past, but it's it's a little bit mute. It's a little bit opaque. You know, mm-hmm. like one of the things we're really fascinated with ruins. One of the pieces in the show is a the ruin of a foundation. And um, to me, it's always very fascinating to think about something like that, um, where it's a pile of rubble, but you know that it used to be a house and there used to be a family living there. And every one of the people living there had a story as rich as your own, but so much of it is is lost. So it's sort of just like left to speculation and conjecture to try to piece together some sort of story. Right. We started thinking about that a lot, too, when we started just collecting historic photos. Because, you Mm -hmm. know, when you go to thrift stores even or antique stores, they'll sometimes be boxes and boxes and boxes of these, like, unknown people. And some of them, you just look at the photo and you know just because of the look in their eye or the context in which they're sitting or standing, it's like there's so much more to their story. But you're... How do you, you know? So I guess like in a way as artists, we have the ability to create kind of those imaginative histories and kind of delve into that um, through creativity. I want to sort of take listeners like stepping into the installation. Uh, You know, the most imposing element you're probably going to notice first is this quite weathered and dilapidated sort of like the bones of a, a, a 19th century farmhouse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and this has quite a story behind it because this is not by far the first place uh, that this has been exhibited. Right. Right. Uh, take us back to the, the prairie restoration. The in origins. Yes. Right. Yeah. Well, this kind of related to Brent's character. So in the film, you know, Brent plays this character that might be kind of a carpenter or a farmer. Or, again, it's kind of ambiguous. But we did a show at Ripon College in Ripon, Wisconsin, and they have like a prairie restoration area outside the um, college. And we got permission to put a sculpture out there. So we did a, a show in their gallery. And then this was you could kind of go between the gallery and this piece if you wanted to piece it all together. So we kind of decided to explore Brent's character. And he. um yeah, so it's a scale. It's slightly scaled down. I think it's what one quarter it's like scale? half scale. Half scale. I think. Yeah, we always seem to work in it's some like five odd, some weird thing, <laughs> small yeah. scale. Yeah. But um, yeah, so we we decided to have his character start to build the frame of a house, almost like this kind of like you know ambitious. Like he wants to create a house at some point, right. but it's a slow process. Yeah. It also became a film set for us. Yeah. So you'll see when you're watching the film, you'll see Brent out on the prairie. In the winter, actually, yeah. there's snow on the ground, starting to build this yeah. structure. And my, my character is sort of deeply flawed. And so <laughs> it's sort of this ambition to build the house, but he eventually gives up on it. So it's a it's an uncompleted house frame. And um, on this prairie behind Ripon College, they do prescribed burns and as part of the prairie management. So we intentionally put it in the path of the burn um, with the intention that we'd be there with camera when the burn happened. And it, it sort of got delayed one year, and so we came back later. So it was really weathered by the time it happened yeah, and yeah. Uh, sort of falling apart a little bit. And we filmed the burn, and to our surprise, it, it, it survived. So we, we, we had intended to destroy it, um, but it, it survived the burn, and we've been kind of trying to destroy it ever since <laughs> in, in various <laughs> other ways. So the, um, it, it, the iteration that's in this gallery, uh, we decided to um, hang it from the ceiling and in such a way that it would sort of pull itself together and almost like start to collapse in on itself. When we tried to hang it, uh, we got it a little bit maybe off the ground and then the ridge beam broke and it fell. And so we, we actually failed to hang the piece, but the piece is really about failure. 
And uh, the way it landed was in this really interesting configuration. And we both took one look at it and we said, oh, that's it. This is, <laughs> this is right. This is how it has to be for the show. Yeah, yeah. Like compositionally speaking. And, and one other thing about that structure, I mean, like Brent said, we've kind of been trying to destroy it, almost like a performative element of this piece and just an evolution of this piece. But because it can't, it isn't being destroyed in all the ways that we try. It's also kind of emerged as this interesting survivor in a way, mm -hmm. you know, that we it's a burden to us now in a way because yeah. we thought maybe it would get completely burned on the prairie and we wouldn't be carting the bones of it back <laughs> right. to our studio. Yeah, you thought it'd be reduced to ashes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I saw the video. I was really surprised at how fast that fire moved right. across right. the prairie. Yeah. That it, was interesting mm -hmm. to us too, yeah. yeah. Um, you were talking about, you know, the character that you embody and, you know, taking on the ambitious project but then never finishing it. But in the film, you know, you know as we've mentioned, it's a silent film. It doesn't follow a traditional narrative structure. To my knowledge, the characters don't – they're not even given names necessarily. Right. Mm -hmm. So you put on this 19th century garb that you've made. Where do you go in your mind when the camera's rolling and you're embodying these characters? Mm -hmm. What are you what kind of preparation yeah. went into what you were going to have them yeah. do? Well, so the film the film has been made without a script and it's also been made without any real framework for like when it would be done. So it it ended up being something like a 10-year project. Mm -hmm. And um so we we like to think of it as a sort of emergent narrative. And so our process generally involves kind of taking a look at what we're already making in the studio and like, like bringing these things in as props or we'll sort of have an idea for a certain scene. But we're working very intuitively. So it's sort of like something that's emerging that we're sort of feeling that we need to do with these characters and we'll try that. And then that breeds other ideas and other, other instincts, you know. And so very much it's a film that's being made on instinct and we don't know where it's going. And, you know, the, the characters themselves sort of started with the reason they have no names. We think about like when you pick up a photo in an antique store, it's sort of this like, who is this and what's the story behind them? And you have no context for it. So that's sort of the starting point for our characters as well. And, um, well, and from a historical perspective, it's like they represent a whole type of person. Right. Too. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and while they're they're sort of loosely based on our ancestors, it's also sort of a collective ancestry. So I mean, much of much of the content has been from things we've found in antique stores that have nothing to do particularly with our own families. Although family history comes into it as well, and I think another layer of it is also autobiography. These are mm -hmm. sort of versions of ourselves mm -hmm. as well, and that wasn't necessarily intended from the beginning, but it sort of emerged out of it, and we realized that that these were self portraits. Um, after working with them for a while. Yeah, actually, uh, one thing, I don't know if I created this term, but <laughs> we started referring to it as the ancestral tether, mm. which is just this kind of concept that you find yourself gravitating towards certain things that you do or just who you are as a person. And sometimes you wonder where did that come from, especially if it's not mm -hmm. directly linked to your parents or something. And it's like, did it come? Is this just a trait that maybe I'm pulling yeah. into the you know present from some long ago ancestor? And I think my character has bit more of that because the the ancestry that I'm referencing is ancient history, actually, um, where my relatives came from in Scotland. And there's some stories about some of them being um, named as witches and things like that. So I'm kind of thinking about that. And that history is very loose. I don't know much about it. So it's very imaginative for me. Mm. Um, and just going back to what you said about like getting in the right headspace, you know, to shoot these scenes. I know for me, like a big part of it is honestly the costume, which 
I like mm. have to give a little thank you to my mom for making it for me <laughs> in a like in a really t- a tight timeline. But when we go on site and we're like, you know, on a prairie or we're in the desert or something and I have to wear these full length skirts and this like apron and, you know, all these sort of cumbersome clothing, you know, it it's, mm-hmm. it does force you to just sort of move through the landscape differently and do you know, work or, you know, whatever it is we're doing as part of the action a little bit differently because you're, you know, dressed up in this weird outfit. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, the film is, of course, integral to the installation, but it's a standalone piece on mm-hmm. its own. Is this something going around to film festivals or mm-hmm. art house cinemas? Is this something you could see on its own yeah. somewhere? Yeah, it has yeah. done a little bit of a festival circuit already. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a version of the film that's more – the one that we're showing in the gallery is kind of looped. So it just kind of endlessly cycles. But there is a version of the film that goes start to finish and has credits at the end <laughs> like a normal right. film. So, yeah. Yeah, it's about a 20-minute film. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So that's been playing. Mm-hmm. And, and Shane, I had earlier mentioned your, your past curatorial work with mm-hmm. those uh, you know historic homes in Wisconsin. Um, how does that, I guess, impact or inform mm-hmm. your artistic process? And is it – kind of keep you grounded in a way in terms of the history or or is it separate? Um, I mean, I think it's all interrelated. I think because Brent and I are a married couple and we also, you know, we own a business together and we do so much together. You know, it seems like almost anything we do in our lives is like kind of feeding into our artwork in some way. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of interesting because I was working in a couple historic museums thinking about these historic houses and their their historic collections and even things like conserving the furniture and the wall coverings and things mm-hmm. like that that were in these houses really at the same time that you were kind of doing that in like with the Chipstone Foundation because they own yeah. a, a collection of early American furniture. And so we were just starting to kind of delve into history in a much different way. Like, you know, you might look at an early American table and there's marks on it from somebody chopping food. And that becomes Mm -hmm. part of, you know, the history of, I don't know what we understand about history, but also the history of that object. And the other thing is one of the rooms that we created for as a film set was made at the Chipstone Foundation. So, of course, when we were working along with them, and we borrowed some artifacts actually from their mm-hmm. collection in yeah. that room. So there was a lot of cross-pollination. I think mm-hmm. it's just always something that's kind of cycling in our brains and feeding into the work. Yeah, Yeah, and then I think I, I was sort of engaging with it on a different level too, kind of out of college when I um, got a job just renovating houses yeah. in River West, uh, a neighborhood in uh, Milwaukee. And, and most of those houses were from sort of like early 20th century or – in a few cases, uh, late 19th century. And um, I was just experiencing these houses as like, you know, like like some of them were gutted and um, just like seeing the evidence of the work that um, was done by, you know, people who are no longer with us and, and, and learning from them, like actually like kind of thinking of them as, as teachers in a way because I would look – look at things and dissect them and, and try to recreate them or work in the style of or, um, you know, do sort of appropriate renovations. Mm-hmm. And, and and I think there was just a lot of, like, it's the things you find behind the walls and just, like, thinking about just seeing the tool marks and the evidence. And it just – there's something about this kind of, like, communication that's happening across time from from people who are long since gone. And um, I, that that was really fascinating to me and I think like really fed into a lot of the early work we were doing with architectural miniatures and stuff and mm-hmm. the, the characters in the film all sort of came out of that work. 
Brent, I would be remiss if I did not have you tell a little bit of the story about the huge ring that you have included in the installation. I was so excited to see you put that in there. Yeah, so um, it's interesting because up until this show, uh, we haven't uh, directly engaged with like um, actual family history. Um, it's always been an influence in the work, and and at times we've known it's been an influence, and at times we sort of discovered that it's, that it's an influence. But um, there is a ring which is uh, a very large ring, and it's hung at eight foot seven inches, and it belonged to uh, my great uncle Clifford Thompson, who was purported to be the tallest man in the world at the time, and. Um, so this was a ring which uh, he, he was in the circus for a while, and this was a ring that you could buy as sort of a souvenir. Um, and so I actually found it on eBay. Um, wow. But um, but my uncle has one that I think he may have gotten from Clifford Thompson. But it's interesting because the there's a site that tracks the tallest man in the world because it's always changing, right? Um, somebody's always getting taller or whatever. But um, they... <laughs> It, he, he actually wasn't as tall as he said he was. And so it's really interesting because even though he was legitimately, for a part of his life, the tallest man in the world, he still needed to be even taller. And so there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of things in this exhibit that are sort of like, try, like reaching upward. There's things that are hung too high on the mm-hmm. wall that we tried to lift the house and failed. Um, <laughs> we, um, the, there are scenes where my character is walking on stilts um, and so there's a lot of these sort of like um, attempts to be more or taller than you are or something. It's a sort of ambition, um, but, a, but a sort of frustrated ambition mm-hmm. that, 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 that this, these characters can't quite seem to achieve. Yeah. Well, I wanted to step a little bit outside the exhibition, and I'm just so curious about your creative process as collaborators who are a married couple. <laughs> which came first? Or <laughs> ah, the collaboration yeah, came actually. first, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Way back when. I mean, John might have still been in Milwaukee at this time. Yeah, I th- yeah. I'm pretty sure. Um, yeah, we just kind of started collaborating with a, a larger group of artists in Milwaukee because there was a lot going on where people were – you know, trying to get together, uh, I guess just to create an art scene out of whatever we could. So we were, you know, organizing shows and making our own artwork and just finding venues and places to display it. So we were collaborating with quite a lot of different people, but I think Brent and I realized like a lot of our ideas kind of aligned. And so we sort of split off and created our own um, art collaboration, which eventually turned into a relationship. Um so, yeah, I think, what, we've been married since 18 years, something like that. But the collaboration's maybe 25 years old. Yeah. Something, something like, like that. that yeah. Close. We, it's hard to remember. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it kind of, like, I, I think a lot of times, yeah, I think people are kind of fascinated by that. We get a lot of comments where people say, oh, I could never collaborate with my partner because we just disagree all the time. And the truth is there is, you know, there is disagreement. We critique each other's ideas yeah. and work all the time, but you just have to get to a point where you kind of detach yourself from it so that you know it's about the work and it's mm-hmm. about what you're doing and mm-hmm. not personal. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I guess we've just gotten really good at that over the years. <laughs> and uh, John, I, I'm curious about how Brent and Shana first came up on your radar. I, I get the sense you've you've probably been following their work for some time. So I think, like Shana said, it was a really hotbed of creative activity in Milwaukee, and I was in grad school, so I was making work, and it 
it really blended in where sometimes I would show with their group or vice versa or, or these ideas would, you know, come out of parties and we would figure out spaces and, you know, people to work with. So I've been following their work, but I've also been kind of, you know, just friends and, and part of that community, that creative community for a long time. And we've done um, a variety of exhibitions, including one at the Watrous Gallery in Madison. Mm -hmm. And at that point, the work and the exhibition was really about the psychology of a architectural space. So what happens in the attic? What happens in the basement, the bedroom, the kitchen? What kinds of behaviors and conversations happen in these spaces? And I was really excited to talk and explore those ideas with them at that time. And since then, I think the work has evolved to include that, but not primarily pointing to that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's been curious to me to see how the structures that you're working with, the architectural structures still yeah. exist, yeah. but they're not necessarily about interior spaces uh, in the way that they were for that exhibition in Madison. Right. And interestingly enough, that show, like some of the artwork in that show is in this show. Yeah. So we have no qualms at all about, maybe it's because all along we've kind of thought of our artworks as like set pieces or something that we can be free to reconfigure, even totally change, like break them, yeah. <laughs> re maybe in some cases just leave them broken or in some cases reconfigure them. But um, yeah, like the model house, you know, it was fairly new sculpture at that point. And here it is in the show again, but reconfigured in a new way with different concepts and themes surrounding it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. John, do you think there's something particularly poignant about having this installation now here in Florida, and this is just something I like woke up at two o'clock in the morning <laughs> going, oh my gosh, connection. But, you know, Florida just in the last year mm -hmm. or so, I mean, big contentious debates when it comes to how history is going to be taught in mm -hmm. schools, particularly right. black history. And then even before that, there's been all the controversy over Confederate monuments, and it's led to you know, vandalism and protests and even physical violence. And this is just all rooted in how people perceive history yeah. and the narratives right. they want to tell. Absolutely. I, I mean, I think it talks about ownership and power for sure. And that's something that Brent and Shana are, you know, working within, you know, who does, you know, own the right to convey history and to what audiences and by what means. And I think that we're, as a culture, um, you know, trying to figure out the balance between that, especially, like you say, in the school system. Um, ultimately, I, I don't think anyone does, and it'll continue to evolve and change as, as we do and as time goes by. But I also think for us, it's really relevant because of this idea that history and the places and the artifacts from history provide some kind of grounding. And even after, um, you know, the hurricane damage, a lot of people I, I know, they, they're longing for some kind of tie to a place and to, you know, um, structures. And when those are, you know, I'm raising my yeah, hand, they're, yes, yeah, they're washed, resonates with right, me. they're washed away. And can you, you know, do you have a brick? Do you have, you know, something from that, that at least you can point to and, it, you know, does it hold that, those reverberations or those memories. And so that's really fascinating to me also about what Brent and Shane are talking about, like trying to at least um, find a structure to create a narrative for yourself mm -hmm. of who you are and who your family is and how 
our personal architecture is so integral to that at times. Yeah, I find that fascinating too because there is such a huge difference, honestly, just coming this far south, right, in terms of what happens to those historical remnants and artifacts because, you know, uh, to contrast that, I guess, you know, we live in a little bit more stable environment that way where you can find a foundation. You know, you maybe have to push some leaves and bushes aside, but there might be a foundation that's been there for hundreds of years. Or like, for instance, Brent has a stone from like more of a ancient mm. and ancestral foundation in Norway. In Norway yeah. And you can still find those things, you know, they're not, they haven't been blown away or underwater at this point, you know. Well, we are about out of time for today's show, but I want to thank my guests. We've been speaking with multidisciplinary artists Shana McCaw and Brent Budsberg. Their installation, A Tenuous Framework, is now at the Wasmer Art Gallery at Florida Gulf Coast University through February 29th. There's an artist talk and opening reception for the exhibition this evening from 6 to 8 p.m. For more on the exhibition, visit fgcu.edu slash artgalleries. And for more about the artists themselves, visit macawbudsburg.com. Brent and Shana, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me and, and bringing this installation here to Southwest Florida. Great, thank you. It's been and a pleasure. Thanks so much to John Lejudo, FGCU Art Gallery's director, uh, for your work to bring this here as well. Yeah, thank you so much, John. And if you missed any of today's show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website, wgcu.org slash gcl, or subscribe to our podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Our show today was produced by Jared Gonzalez and yours truly. Our director is Richard Chinqui. For now, thanks for listening. I'm John Davis. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest Florida. Thank you.